loves the fellow creation of God. If God loves you, I also must love you. If God loves me, you have to love me. So there. It is the calling of the church to reflect this deep, sincere love of God, first to the church and then to everyone else. God loves the world, not the things in the world. God loves the people of the world. How about you? This month, as we reflect on missions, that is essentially the driving force, in my opinion, behind missions. Missions for me, worldwide, abroad, and local, is not driven by a need or desire for reward. It's not driven by a desire for God to pat me on the head spiritually, financially, (laughs) physically, emotionally, in any way. That's not why we do missions. Missions for me isn't necessarily only to see people saved. That is a strong desire. I want people to have what I want. But the reason I want them to have what I want, this is the reason right here, because I love them. Because God loves them. Everything else that is gained through missions, everything else that is gained through ministry, in my opinion, is just icing on the cake. Because the real philosophy that drives biblical missions is God's love for the world and our love for God, which then is reflected right back to the world again. Do you love God? Do you love God's people, the church? And do you love people who don't love God? I hope so, because in Romans chapter 5, God loves people who don't love God. So it is our calling to do the same. This month is also Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, Meriden Hills is blessed with four pastors and their wives and their children. And let me tell you, folks, I don't know if you know how much of a blessing it is to have that many pastors. I mean, I hope you think it's a blessing, right? More is not always better. I hope in this case that it is. More is better. And we truly are blessed to have some great families who serve Meriden Hills. Again, not just the men, but the women they have married, the children that we have been raising, my family, Lafaniers, Amasulas. Our families love this church. And uh, this month, it is an opportunity for you to tell these families how much you love them. It does not need to be financial. You can just say it. Just write them a card. Send them a text, give them a hug, and let them know we love you, we love your family, and uh, we appreciate you. I I will tell you, look, uh, no pastor is going to not like a financial gift, but every pastor I know is deeply touched by just a note. The greatest uh, encouragement to me has always been written. A card on my desk, a text sent to me. These are the greatest forms of comfort and encouragement. And so don't feel like you have to be giving money to pastors to say you appreciate them. There will be an opportunity the last Sunday of this month to do so if you desire. But throughout the month, just let them know that you care about them. And one of our pastors now, our assistant pastor here at Meriden Hills, Pastor John, I uh, gave him the opportunity. would love to hear uh, from him, not just this Sunday, but next Sunday, to show our church from God's Word what local missions looks like, what world missions looks like. So, Pastor John, come on up.
what starts this whole entire um, uh, uh, event that brings upon what the title of our message is, and that is Threatened. Let me, before we get into Acts chapter 3, give you the basic of what we're going to talk about today. God's enemies hate God's work. And if you are under the impression that if you do God's will and you do right, then God's going to bless you and cause nothing but roses and daisies in your life, you've been told a lie. And if you truly read the Bible and truly see that God's servants have gone through tremendous suffering in their life, you cannot come out of the Bible and reading it with this idea that God only gives only good, 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 good things to his children from his children's perspective. Now, God never makes a mistake. God always does what is right. And God even knows that sometimes when he has to send negative things into our life, it is the right thing to send in our life. We might not look at it that way, but God always knows it's the right thing. So these disciples are going to feel threatened. They're going to be threatened. And what happens when God's people get threatened? Well, that's the idea of our message today. What started this threatening? Well, Acts chapter 3, the disciples come into the temple and have the absolute gall to heal somebody. How dare they actually take somebody who they have been bringing to the temple. The Bible says in Acts chapter 3 that there was a certain man that from his mother's womb was carried. They've been bringing this guy to the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. He gets there every single day. He does the same thing. He actually asks alms, money from the people. They know this guy. This guy is somebody that they've passed by several times going into the temple. And this was a very important thing to the giving of alms as you went into the temple because in that pharisaical, pharisaical, and really not just pharisaical, but in the law of Moses, they were required to give to people that did not have, and so they would make it really easy on themselves. They would put all these people that really could not work and needed help along the way so that they could do their job and give to them. That's why these people were there. They could fulfill their, you know, here you go. I did God's will today. And if you did that in a humble spirit with really, uh, 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 you know, with God's love upon you and wanting to show God's love, God was pleased. That's not, I think, what's happening most of the time with the alms that were given here. I think it was, hey, everybody, look, I'm going to put five alms into this guy. Everybody, look, I got five. Here we go. Yeah. Good times. I've been to actually fellowships and preachers' fellowships where they stand up and yell money that they're going to give, and everybody applauds. And I think to myself, who's getting the glory here? Interesting. That was, that was free. <laughs> but what we have here is this miracle that happens. But I love how Jesus really taught his disciples the purpose of miracles. And this is where a lot of people that, that want miracles really mess it up sometimes. They want a miracle just for the miracle's sake. The miracle is, in their mind, the message. They want that miracle, and they want the miracle like this amazing miracle of this man being healed in verses 1 through 10 of, of Acts chapter 3 to be the main part of the sermon, so to speak. But notice that Jesus always used a miracle so that he could get people to understand the validity of his message. And that's what Peter's going to do here. 
Peter's going to allow the miracle of this man walking and leaping and praising God and just being so excited that he can now walk and he can actually do something he's never really done in his life. He can actually get around all by himself. What a great opportunity. And he's going to be rejoicing so probably loud and probably boisterous that everybody's going to be kind of drawn to what in the world's happening. There's a commotion happening, and Peter takes the opportunity to say, we got a crowd because of the miracle. Why the miracle? So the message could go forth. And boy, he preaches a message. Now we know, based on this context, that he started in the ninth hour, which is towards the end of the day. And so we know that he preaches this message, and this message is, we're not going to read the whole thing, but it is a it's a barn burner, so to speak, if you want to call it that. He really lays it out. He doesn't pull the punches. He tells them what for. Remember, this is the same group of people that you can say was involved in just, you know, 50, 60 days earlier, you know, crucifying Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the same time period, same connection. And so this is Peter's message, and we can highlight it just by going through it. And we're in chapter 3 of Acts, and he is talking about how that Jesus is glorified, and it was Jesus that God sent. Verse 14, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Pretty strong words. Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect set soundness in the presence of you all. Basically, he said, this, is, this miracle happened in the name of Jesus. He doesn't stop there. Verse 19, he says, repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. I mean, he tells them, listen, you need to repent. You need to get right. And this is something that we read in verses 11 through 26. But I think this message went a lot longer than what's just in God's word. I think we just get the main points here. Because if you look at, he started the ninth hour, this whole thing happens, and we'll get to chapter 4 when the disciples are going to be threatened, and they're going to say, well, it's too late in the day to actually, you know, have a court uh, convening, so we're going to put them in jail for the night and talk to them the next morning. I think the reason for that is this message probably went maybe a couple of hours, and so I'm going to do the same. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mrs. Palmer is going to pay for uh, dinner for you, all of you. It's going to be great. <laughs> Wonderful. And so what we have here is Peter preaching and then 5,000 people getting saved. Now we're in Acts chapter 4. 5,000 people get saved. Now that's an amazing amount of people. Now this is the temple. This is the big deal, right? But, you know, this is pretty much a representation of the major amount of the people that were needed to actually start uh, something major like this. As far as a synagogue or a temple, it was amazing that here we have 5,000 people. You put that together with 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2. We're talking about 8,000 people that were added to the church. And I don't think less people be, uh, were added to the church later on in the book of Acts. I think after this event, they just stopped counting. It was just like, there was the point. God is saving, God is bringing people, and God is just doing his work, and we are just blessed to be a part of it. 
So after 5,000, they stopped counting. But we know on the authority of God's word, there's at least 8,000 people, 8, people in the church of Jerusalem at this time. So what happens is the authorities are not happy with Peter and John for what they've just allowed to take place. Now, we look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and they spake unto the people and the priest and the, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came unto them being grieved. They were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the Sadducees, you probably heard this, they were sad because they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the spirit world. So they didn't believe that anything happened to you after you died. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay? Because nothing happened after their life. It's over. Right? So they're upset because they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is so against what they believe in. And so they lay hands on him, them on verse 3 and put them in hold until the next day for it was now eventide. which is around the Jewish end of the day, 6 o'clock. So we have this time to go, time to leave the temple. We're not going to have a convening. We're going to go. We'll deal with these guys the next day. So in the morning, verses 5 through 7, they bring Peter and John to the council and ask them what, by what power they're doing these things. And when they say what power, they're basically saying, in whose authority did you have the gall to heal this guy? How dare you? And who gave you this permission? Wow, you say, shouldn't they be happy? Shouldn't they be rejoicing? Well, yes, they should be. But when your God is more yourself than God, you're not happy if you're not the one doing the work. You're not happy if you're not the one involved or you're not happy when God's work is going forward and you didn't get chosen. Kind of makes you upset. That's called pride. And so they're wondering, who gave you the right to do these things? And Peter's going to answer them in verses 8 through 12. And very clearly say, Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? In other words, are we being, like, reprimanded because we just healed a lame guy? Be it known unto you, verse 10, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of, here we go, you want to know whose authority we did this in? The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And this is the stone which is set at naught of the, you builders, which has become the head of the corner. In verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What a statement. Very bold. But one just, notice he did that in the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, you see their amazement in verse 13. They saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they were specifically taken back because these guys were from Galilee. Fishermen, unlearned, ignorant people, hillbillies. They should not have these really powerful words to say to us. And who do they think they are? They're just unlearned fishermen. But I love this. They actually paid attention because why? Because they noticed that they had been with Jesus. Mm, good thought. 
Verse 14, and beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go outside the council, they conferred among themselves. So in verse 16, they're going to start conferring and saying, what are we going to do with these guys? So they talk amongst themselves. They have this debate. And then they bring, verse 18, they bring the, the disciples back in and they command them, don't speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Don't do this anymore. And that's what we're going to do. And Peter's response was pretty quick. They didn't have to think about it. Peter and John didn't have to get together and huddle and say, oh, no, what do we do? No, it was just pretty like, oh, well, you're asking us not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. Well, that's, uh, that, that's a no-go. <laughs> Look at verse 19. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. <laughs> uh, guys, we uh, understand that you're the judges, but we can't help ourselves. We have to preach and teach Jesus. We just have to do that. Wow. Boldness. So they threaten them a little bit more. They say, okay, well, know that if you dare cross us, there will be more consequences. Threatening. And they let them go. That's where we get to the meat of our message here. Because here we are in, uh, in Acts chapter 14. And very clearly, point number one is this. I think I have control now. Here we go. Almost. Wow, a lot of verses. There we go. Title of the message is threatened. And here we go. God's enemies threaten the messenger of truth. See, when God's enemies realize they can't silence the message of truth, who do they threaten? The messenger. And this is something that Jesus knew would happen. Jesus actually prepared, you can say, that his disciples to know that you're going to actually carry a message to the world that the world is not going to be thrilled to hear. So notice that they won't be willingly receiving it. They will really cause more problems than you would like to be caused. What did Jesus say in John chapter 16, verse 2? I believe I have this uh, verse here. John chapter 16, verse 2. Go ahead and pull it up for us. John chapter 16, verse 2. The Bible tells us Jesus is going to tell, um, excuse me, let's go to John chapter 15, 18 through 21. And I will go ahead and turn there in my Bible and read it right from there. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Let me get to the right chapter here. Here we go. Here's what Jesus said. If the world hate you, ye know it hated me before it hated you. Hmm. Verse 19, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. This is, these are Jesus' words. Verse 20, remember the word which that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. 
Verse 21 in John chapter 15, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake because they know not him that sent me. A few verses later in John chapter 16, verse 2, he kind of specifies some things. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for such a time as Acts chapter 4 and the rest of the book of Acts for the most part. He is not going to say what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel might want you to hear, that when you are following God's word and God's way, you're never going to have a bad thing happen to you. That is ridiculous. Jesus didn't believe that, and that's why Jesus prepared his disciples. So what Jesus is saying is this. Instead of responding in fear, instead of cowering, understand that the truth makes enemies and do not take their hatred personally. Jesus is saying, listen, guys, when they bring hatred to you, they're doing it because they hate me, Jesus is saying. Don't let it become personal to you. Don't become so threatened that you silence the message and when your feelings get hurt because all of us have feelings that get hurt when your feelings get hurt realize that they're not doing it because they hate you they're doing it because they hate me now those who have been persecuted by jesus through the annals of history have to keep that in mind because the things that were done to god's servants sure seems like they hated god's servants I mean, there's a lot of things we could go through and a lot of chronicles of, like, say, the Fox's Book of Martyrs and things like that that tell us all the people that gave their lives and many of the people that gave their lives. And by the way, don't, don't, don't think that there's no more persecution going on into the world today. That's all stuff in ancient history. No, there is a persecuted church even today. There are martyrs even happening today in countries that are not just threatening but all out declaring war on the gospel. And there are Christians today losing their life because of the truth that they proclaim. And it's very difficult to do this because, let's be real, we're talking about Missions Month. We're talking about sharing the gospel. So we're sharing the gospel not just to people that are in the community as a whole, but we're sharing the gospel to people that we know, people that we've grown up with, people that we consider family. And some of the most intimidating people to share the gospel with is the people that know us the most, isn't it? Because we don't want to ruin that relationship with them. And it becomes like a conflict of interest. We know that they need the truth. We know that God's love has, you know, sent Jesus to die for them. And we want to share that with them, but we don't want to lose the opportunity to interact with them in the future. So we feel like we we can't share the gospel with them like we need to. But the reality is, even if they do say things that are negative against you, don't take it personally It is the message of the truth that they need to hear. I'm not saying go to your family meetings and make a whole bunch of problems by, you know, preaching a 10-point message. That's what I'm saying. I am saying that we still need to have boldness, and boldness comes when we don't take things personally. Let me touch on something in this, this second point that I think is something that I need to hear often. 
When we are threatened, we need to bring it to God. When we are threatened, we need to bring it to God. That's what happens in verse 23 of chapter 4. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders said unto them. So this group hears what just happened. And look at verse 24. And when they heard that, what did they do? They got on social media and blasted the temple for what they had done. Oh, they didn't do that. Even if there was social media at the time, I don't think they would have done that. Okay? It wasn't just a lack of technology. It was a mindset. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, please keep them from hurting us. Please keep them from being mean to us. Lord, please don't let them be, be hurtful to us and tell them that it's really not right to threaten us. Is that what they say? No. You're like, that's not in my version. What in the world's going on? <laughs> what that happens? They say this, Lord, thou art God. which has made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is. What do they do? They, first of all, they said, God, you are sovereign. You are all powerful. Verse 25, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why doth the heathen rage and the people imagine vain, empty things? Verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So they're claiming the power and the majesty of Christ, of Jesus, and saying, listen, all these people, they got together and they also threatened and more than threatened, they killed Jesus Christ, your only begotten son. Verse 28, for to, who, for, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now, there's a great verse about God and his plan and the way he executes his plan. And what these people are saying is, God, we know you are sovereign. We know you are powerful. We know you can protect. However, if you choose to persecute, if you choose to allow threatenings, if you choose to allow people to be angry at us. That's okay. And I think what happens here is we get so much into this comfort mentality that we don't want anything to be uncomfortable in our life. And let's be real. We as a country, we as a culture, one of our gods is comfort. Not the God of all comfort. We want the God of the lazy boy comfort. That guy. You know, we get really testy when it's not a perfect 70 degrees anywhere we are, right? We get really testy when we don't have, you know, a comfortable chair to sit in or we don't have the most, you know, 
You can say, delicious meal in front of us. Because that's just something we think is kind of a right that we have. And when you go and travel to other cultures and other countries, you realize that's not a right. That's like a benefit. That's like, that's comfort. But we sometimes get really, really, really hung up on this thing that God needs to make us comfortable. God never says he would make you comfortable. He said he would give you comfort. And sometimes we go right to God, and all we do is ask God and his sovereignty and power is to get us out of this mess. That's all we pray for. God, get me out of this. Lord, protect me from this. Lord, don't let me uh, face this. Don't let me have to go through this. Don't let me feel the threatenings. Don't let me have to be threatened at all. Just let me do your work and not be threatened. That's the prayer we pray because we don't want to not be comfortable. But God is the God of all comfort, which means that even when you're in uncomfortable situations, God still can bring comfort. So what is, our, what is our responsibility? To be submissive to his will. There are people that are choosing to follow God's call to very, very dangerous places around the earth. Places that are known to hate Christians. Places that have underground churches because the ruling authorities in those countries would actually do as much damage as possible to churches that they knew of. And people are choosing to submit to God's call to go to these places. You say, they're crazy. No, they're submissive. And they're not caring, really, what they think and what their family thinks about their safe situation. They're saying, God is calling me to this place, and if God calls me there, he can protect me. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. And listen, if I do go by way of death, because of persecution, then so be it. God's will is the most important thing. Now, I'm not saying we have that culture in our country today yet. I can't stand here today and say 100% sure that within 10 years, you know, we'll be able to have no problem sharing the gospel and sharing the whole counsel of God here in America. I can't say that with every single, you know, um, uh, you can say surety in my mind. None of us can. We don't know the future. What we can say is that if there is a time that comes into our culture where it is no longer legal to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word, what are we going to do? Here's what we should do, what they did in Acts chapter 4. They asked God for boldness. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by thy holy by, by the name of thy holy child Jesus here's their response god give us boldness not god take away the threatenings no god give us boldness that in the face of threatenings, we can still preach the truth. That's difficult to hear, 
It's way more difficult to do, and that's why it takes boldness. I think our church as a whole, not just saying Meriden Hills Baptist Church, but any church that possesses the truth, has members within their congregation that really need to work on having boldness. They know the truth. They've known it for years. They've known it since they were a child, so to speak. And they've gone through youth group, and they've gone into, you know, the main services and sat through preaching services, and they, they can quote the verses. They can tell you the way to go to heaven very easily and very eloquently, but they just don't do it because of their lack of boldness. And the Holy Spirit tells them to share the gospel, and they get so self-conscious about what people will think and what if people don't like what I say that they decide not to do what God calls them to do. And that's a sad thing because God's word is effective, and God's word needs to be shared. And if we're not approaching people with the boldness that God wants us to have, what should your prayer for today be? Lord, give me boldness. Give me boldness. Point number two, ask God for boldness to speak the truth and to continue the work to bring glory to Christ. I love this. Uh, I advanced it too much. Let's go back to this. And to bring glory to Christ. I absolutely love how the disciples phrased this miracles that they are asking to do. Look at what, he's, look what they say in verse 30. Stretching forth thy hand to heal, Stretching forth thine hand to heal. Let me read it again. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, not my hand to heal. That's a totally different thing than what the miracle workers of today want, right? They want you to, you know, bless their hand for what their hand did. No, thine hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done by not our names, but by whose name? By Jesus' name. See, here's the problem. You can go out with boldness, but if your boldness is not securely rooted in Jesus Christ and bringing honor and glory to, glory to him and letting him do the work, you're going to get really, really, you're going to get yourself in trouble. What's going to happen? You're going to be looking more like you're contentious than you're trying to share the truth in love. So here's what we have here. We have them asking God for boldness to speak the truth. But then we see the amazing blessing. What does God respond? The amazing blessings in God's response, and that is verses 31 through 37. Oh, look what happens. And when they had prayed, verse 31, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with what? Boldness. Hey, they asked, and God delivered. So if you are lacking boldness today, Say a prayer of, Lord, give me the boldness to share the truth I need to share. No matter what threatenings come my way, give me the boldness. And guess what God will do? He'll give you the boldness. That's what happened here. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought, that, the, that ought of the things which he had possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So what happens here is tremendous unity that is given by God to these people. And by the way, let me just say this. Unity is given by God, not by compromising truth. 
So many of us get caught up in creating unity. We've never been called to create unity. We're to maintain unity by operating in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's how we're supposed to operate. And when we do that, we have unity just like these disciples had unity. They were unified together under Jesus Christ. So many people, so many uh, churches, they, they want to have unity by sacrificing major doctrines that are in God's word that ought not be compromised. And saying, well, we want to be unified, so we have to compromise. That is not the answer. Because what happens is the truth gets watered down. And at what point does the culture accept truth when it becomes so watered down that it no longer represents the truth anymore? We don't allow the culture to dictate truth, do we? We have the Word of God that tells us what is true. We don't have the authority to compromise God's Word. Unity is given by God, not by compromising truth. And so what they have here is this unity that is of uh, another worldly type idea of unity. So much unity that they all get together and they realize that they need to bind together in such a common spirit that they literally say, listen, we're just going to give everything we have to this work of God. We're going to sell our lands. We're going to give all of our food. We're going to have everything in common. This is not socialism. This is called brotherly kindness and brotherly love. And what they're going to do is just say, hey, let's all live together in the best way possible. No matter what happens from the outside, we're going to be united on the inside. And if you have a need and the, word, the work of God needs the finances to go forward, we are going to do everything we can to make that happen. And that's what they did. So much so that there are people that are going to sell their possessions, their lands and houses, and they're going to bring them to the feet of, of, of the disciples. This guy in 36, Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, he is one of those that had land and sold it and brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this amazing phenomenon that we see in Acts chapter 5, which is what we'll get to next week, because here come Ananias and Sapphira saying, we're going to do the same thing, but they're not going to do it in the same spirit as Bar uh, Barnabas. God's going to do some purification of the church. Because... Once again, we have this situation where everybody is so unified that they're going to do everything possible to let the work of God continue. And boy, that's a great unifier, to let the work of God continue. By the way, that takes another level of boldness, too. Can you imagine some of the family members of these people? You're going to do what? You're going to sell what? You're going to, hey, that's my inheritance. What are you doing selling my inheritance? Imagine that conversation. Boldness. Unity. And what happens? The thing that's happened through since the beginning of the church, God takes the evil intentions of men and uses them for his own purposes, and his kingdom is going to be furthered. And far from destroying the church, persecution merely served to purify and to strengthen it. It matures the church in the same way that trials mature individual believers. And after surviving three centuries of violent attacks, the church 
emerged as the dominant force in the Roman Empire. And it was the church father, Tertullian, that made this statement that it was the blood of the martyrs that became the seed of the church. In other words, no matter how we threatened them, no matter how we persecuted them, they kept on growing and growing and growing and growing. Why? Because when you threaten ch uh, ch children of God that are connected so much with God that they say, oh, give us boldness. But we're not going to compromise the truth. People start to pay attention. And they start to say, I wish I had that kind of boldness. They must believe something that I don't believe because I'm not bold about anything like that in my life. I'm not saying go out and make a bunch of contentious arguments. Please don't do that because we know the Bible tells us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We know that we're to speak the truth in love, but you can speak the truth in love with boldness because sometimes it's just lovingly saying the truth and allowing the debate that might not be pleasant to happen, but you keep on speaking the truth. That's boldness.